Hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas yesterday and got to spend time with family and friends or loved ones and experience the joy of the holiday together. It's always a nice reprieve from everyday life and uh, especially these last few years when life seems to weigh so heavy on us uh, every time we turn around. Uh, it's nice to, to spend time with one another and I'm glad that we get to spend this time together today. Uh, it really is wonderful to gather with fellow Christians, to share our faith with one another, to sing songs. Um, it's uplifting, and it's a highlight for me of the week. We're concluding this morning, as I promised back in October, we, we would go through the end of 2021, and we were just going to tell Jesus stories, because that is the most important thing we can do. It's what we're called to do. Uh, so much rich uh, content in Scripture that we can talk about, that we can choose from, that we can share together, but to talk about the, the life of Christ and the people he encountered and the miracles he performed and the parables he told and the things that he taught, uh, that is the foundation of everything else we do. And this morning we're going to talk about some of the foundation of Jesus himself and that story. And that is in both his birth and his early life that sets the stage for what he will do in his ministry and that will set the stage for what we will do and what, what we are doing in our own ministry as, as inhabitants of this world. Remember, as we look at these stories, we want to put ourselves in the place of those who experienced it and who interacted in it. That's a hard thing to do. And it's especially hard with this story because there is nothing that changes how we see present moments quite like it being uh, so far in the past that you're dealing with the, the child version of something you will know in its adulthood. Uh, imagine, if you will, and this is a, a strange thing to imagine, but imagine if you could go back in time. And, of course, the first thing everybody wants to do when they go back in time is either stop the Kennedy assassination or kill Hitler. I don't know why people want to do that right away, but that's like the first thing people say they want to do if they could go back in time. But if you actually could, and imagine if you could go to a time, and let's go with Adolf Hitler or any evil historic figure, and you could see them as a child. And we kind of do that. Have you ever seen pictures of some of these dictators and murderers in their youth when they were children? Before all the bad stuff they did. It's really hard to look at those pictures and imagine an innocent, sweet child because we know the evil that, that they do. Um, that's the, the case on the other side with Jesus. We already know what his ministry will be, the things he will teach, and the miracles he will perform, and what will happen on the cross. We kind of know the plan because we get to look backwards. So when we read about the birth of Christ, when we read about his early years as a child, and there's not very much of that, but when we do read it, we look at it like, of course, this all makes sense to us because we know where the story's going. When, in fact, if we can back up and spread out a little bit and see this story as it, they would have seen it, it really is a unique and fascinating story. It's really kind of amazing and a little bit puzzling how God did what he did and why he did what he did through Jesus. We're going to start in Luke. And I start in Luke because I like Luke, because I like the way he tells the stories. John, I, I think John is probably my favorite gospel, but it doesn't really count as a biographical retelling. 
because that's not the purpose of John. Mark is a little lax on details sometimes, but has an interesting perspective and may be the oldest of the Gospels. Luke is by far, it's the most contemporary of the um, synoptic Gospels, the first three, but it is also the most complete in its detail. Uh, Luke was an investigative reporter, essentially, and, uh, and wrote a very thorough Gospel. So he tells us all about John the Baptist's birth, and the prophecy of it, and all the things surrounding it, and of course, Christ's. But we're going to start with Mary. So our Jesus story today doesn't even start with Jesus, okay? We're going to go to his mother, to Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. What a strange thing. And can you imagine how startling it would be uh, for someone to suddenly enter the room where you are and greet you in the name of the Lord? And I don't know what physical um, appearance Gabriel had. We do see Gabriel mentioned uh, here as a messenger. Uh, the two angels, and, and the, the word used to refer to them as archangels, um, Gabriel's not ever called an archangel, but um, we have Michael, who is a warrior, and we have Gabriel, who is often seen as a messenger. So here is Gabriel, and, and he is named here, and it says he is sent from God. So he appears to Mary. It is made very clear she is engaged, and she is a virgin, which would have been considered a requirement of engagement. Um, people did not, you know, they wanted to marry someone who was pure. That is a part of their culture. And that's a very important thing because we, again, we know what's going to happen. But the circumstances surrounding this, we often overlook because we know the real story. When in fact, the circumstances surrounding it have everything to do with the story of Jesus coming into this world. So, Mary who is engaged to a descendant of David, the line of royalty, um, though not royalty himself. I mean, he was a, a carpenter, a stonemason, Joseph was. And, uh, but here she is chosen. So he greets her, Gabriel does. She is perplexed, and the angel says in verse 30, do not be afraid, will be one of the most common, most frequent statements that Jesus will make in his time on earth. Do not be afraid. How many times in the stories we've already looked at, when interacting with someone, does he say, don't be afraid, don't fear, all right? So here Gabriel foreshadowing that by saying, don't be afraid, uh, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So this is all just told right there, flat out, uh, very, it hits you in the, side, in the side of the head kind of statement. You're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby, and you're going to name him Jesus. So not only is she hit with this unexpected news that she's going to be a mother, but also the name's already been picked out. So this is, this is something that has been planned. This is in the works. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Okay, a couple of things about that statement. Number one, we read that and we go, yeah, he's the son of God. He is a king. 
we understand that that kingship and that kingdom are not earthly. We also understand that there was the thought amongst the Jewish people in that time that there would be a Messiah, a chosen one who would come, and he would establish a kingdom. Think of the history of what God's people have been through to this point, and particularly the two, three, four hundred years just before this, because that's that kind of dark period in Scripture, what we call the intertestamental period, when the prophets, uh, you know, we get to the end of the prophets in the Old Testament, and then you have that blank page, and then it says the New Testament, and then the other blank page, that's like 350 or 400 years in there, and nothing happens. Well, nothing that we have in our Scripture, but a lot happened in history. Because Alexander the Great died, and his generals sought to split up his conquests. And Seleucian and Ptolemy began battling over northern and southern territories in the known world. And guess what was right in the middle? Jerusalem. And what changed hands multiple times and saw nothing but war and death and destruction? Jerusalem. And eventually, uh, uh, Antipas... uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Antiochus uh, took over Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, uh, persecuted the people, and in order to be freed from his rule, uh, and this was several generations after Ptolemy and, and, and Seleucian, in order to be free from his rule, the religious leaders, what we would come to know as the Pharisees, along with uh, some other groups, uh, allowed Rome to conquer Jerusalem and that region. They had a political agreement with Rome that allowed them to come in. Now, it it very much is the enemy of the enemy is your friend. And they come in, and they get rid of the really bad guys and are replaced by sort of bad guys. That's the world that this is happening in. And the almost legend and the hope and the prophecy that there would be one who would come that would restore all of this that would do away with this oppression and this conquest and set Jerusalem as the city on a hill, which it was, that would, uh, that would rule. That was what they were looking for. So Mary hears this. Now, this is big news. It's big news for a lot of reasons for her, and there must have been a lot of shock, but that would have all been in the context of this belief that one day an answer to their problem would come. And And so now she's being told that it's going to come in this form. So when he says things like, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, the angel is drawing on these names that they understand and know. Jacob is Israel. The line of David is the throne, which was promised that it would never be done away with. Um, The word forever is an interesting word in scripture, particularly in the New Testament Uh, well, it's also in the Old Testament, we see phrases that say this will be forever. And yet, we know literally it's not. It ends. Uh, So-and-so will reign forever. We found artifacts all over the Middle East and Northern Africa that talk about kings and pharaohs, and they were king forever because they didn't mean forever the way we mean forever. When I say it's going to be forever, uh, either I'm, I'm using a figure of speech that is a long time or I literally mean eternity because forever in our language is forward-looking to an end point or the lack of an end point. Forever for them meant that's what it is right now until it's not. 
Okay? So I might could say, I'm going to preach forever. Don't worry. <laughs> but I might say, I'm going to preach forever this morning. And in Semitic language and the way they use words, that means until I stop, I'm going to be preaching. Um, if you, if you, I've been teaching through the book of Hebrews online. If you've watched those videos uh, this week, which I guess came out this morning, um, I talk about Hebrews chapter 7 and the, the words of David, you are a priest forever, forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was considered a high priest forever, even though we only have about three verses that say anything about this guy in Genesis. The, we don't know what happened to him. Presumably he died at some point. Forever was forever because we don't know how it ended. So as, until we know differently, it is the way it is. That's how they look at time. So when the angel prophesies Jesus is going to reign forever, we see that as, yes, in heaven, next to God, as the Son of God, as our Savior. They hear that as establishing a new order that will stand, that will stand apart from the world and that will conquer the world. So she's hearing big news, news that has social spiritual and political implications for them. So verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? That's a very good question and a very logical question. And we would skip right over that and say, well, we know how that works, but she's, she's not thinking that way. This is not even a concept that she could have a child. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. She has just been told, uh, to be blunt, that she is going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That is a bit of a, that's some news, isn't it? Um, I've got so many questions and I'm sure she had more. So this is... We look at this and we just skip over it because we go, well, that's the plan. Yeah, sure. Can you imagine being told such a thing? Can you imagine being in that position? And in a matter of moments, you're, you're informed that not only are you going to have a child, it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be put there by God, and then it's going to be the Son of God, and then now you still have to get married and be cared for and, and to have... To, to, to be sustained in life, which marriage was a major component of living for women of this age. By the way, Mary, um, we think about her as being young, like 13. Okay, that's, that's probably, she was probably in that ballpark. Very young. Very young. Because that would have been the appropriate time of betrothal and marriage, given the timing in that culture. So here she is, a, a, still really a child by our standards, being told this Im, impossible to parse thing and being made known that something really earth shattering is about to happen because of her and through her. We're gonna skip ahead though. We're gonna skip ahead and go to chapter two of Luke. Now think about what what the, this is now like between Mary and Joseph and the rest of the world around them. Because the purity of someone who is getting married was paramount. 
It is very evident to anyone who looks at Mary now that she is with child that, that, is, that by their understanding, that purity no longer exists. Therefore, there is shame now both on her for her promiscuity and upon Joseph. Because the best case scenario there is that this is a shotgun wedding, we might say. That's the best case scenario for how society will view them, that this is an illegitimate child, but they are, you know, he's trying to make an honest woman out of her, right? The worst case scenario is that she has been unfaithful and impure, and now he will take on the shame of going ahead and marrying the impure and uh, shamed woman. There's a lot going on culturally there that you and I won't understand and that you and I would look at and say That's, that doesn't seem right because cultures change, society changes, and our attitudes toward certain things and genders change. And that's fine. But we skip over that, don't we? And we talk about it sometimes. You know, We're trying to drive home the point emotionally. But really, we kind of brush past what Mary must have gone through her whole life. Because, yeah, it might have been hard trying to explain why you were pregnant uh, when you were unwed and that this is not the father or something, but, but, you know, Jesus is born and then it's fine. Then we're talking about Jesus. We forget about Mary. Do you realize that for the rest of her life she had to be labeled with the shame of fornication? For the rest of her life. She was shamed with the weight of having an illegitimate child. And even for Jesus in his youth, his brothers and sisters who would be born from Joseph and Mary would say to him, we know who our father is. Because everybody knew. Everybody knew. And then all of a sudden, here very shortly, we will not hear from Joseph ever again in Scripture. Imagine that the best case scenario is that he died. But he could have left. We don't know. We don't know. But we do know that the shame and the weight of the society and the religious uh, environment weighed on Mary for the rest of her life. People looked at her differently for the rest of her life. The fact that Jesus was born and the people began to follow him and accept him as the Messiah, and that was a, uh, still a minority of the people of the world, that did not change the fact that she was still seen as a fornicator and the mother of an illegitimate child. And we should not brush over that. We should not let that fall to the side because we have to ask a question. Why? God chose to enter the world. He had a purpose and a plan, and he chose to come down and dwell with mankind. There's a reason for it. Again, Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 tells us exactly why all this had to happen. But we'll get back to that. If you're God, and by the way, I've thought about this. If I were God, I, it's, it's a good thing I'm not because uh, I hold grudges way too much and lightning is fun. So, but it's a good thing I'm not. But if, I, if, if you were God and you were going to come to the earth to dwell among your creation, how would you enter? I know exactly how I'd walk in there. Doors would fly open, pyrotechnics, music. I'd want to make a grand entrance. I'm kind of a showman like that. And I don't know how you would do it, but I doubt very seriously if we took a vote that any of us 
would say, I think I'm going to go the illegitimate child route. Of all the ways to give the Son of God to mankind, why did he choose this? That's a question that we have to ask, and it's a question we don't ask enough because we, we fly right past that and we get to the manger and the wise men and then all of the rest. And, but God chose that for a reason because it wasn't so much about how he got here. It's about how he left. And from the moment Jesus was born, the clock was ticking on God's plan. It didn't matter how he got here because there was only one way that he could leave and accomplish what he was here to do. I, I've, that idea, I don't remember if you remember this. I can't remember, it, it's been maybe between five and ten years ago. Um, this guy, I, I think his last name was Baumgartner, not, not from around here, but uh, he, he was a, like a stuntman, like a professional daredevil guy. And Red Bull, the company... Uh, sponsored a free fall jump that literally occurred from the edge of outer space. I don't know if you remember seeing this, but it's a great video. You can find it online. They send this guy up in a hot air balloon, up higher than any person has ever jumped before in free fall. He's literally on the edge of space. You can see in the, in the video, it's darkness. He's just there at the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. And he's going to jump out of this and free fall and then parachute and fall to earth. Okay. I remember watching that and thinking, well, the worst part for me is like the 45-minute ride up in the hot air balloon. Because the hot air balloon doesn't scare me. Going up high doesn't scare me. It's the fact that there's no way down. There is only one. He could chicken out halfway up. Too bad. You have to jump. There's only one way to leave. And for Jesus, his entrance did not have to be the grand entrance of a conquering monarch because that's not what he was here to do. What he was to conquer was something far greater than another country or army. What he was to conquer was sin and death, and that had more to do with how he left. We studied in Revelation chapter 12 a couple weeks ago this imagery of Satan waiting to put a stop to this plan, God wouldn't let him. God wouldn't let him. And for all of time, God's people, saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, have been at war with that evil one. And we are empowered and our victory is won because of Christ, because Jesus chose a lowly young girl who was faithful to God and allowed her to suffer something really hard in this life. She, Mary had a hard life. God asked her to do that, and she went through with it because it was part of God's plan. Beautiful. I think it's so beautiful, and we miss it, but it's a beautiful part of the story. So Caesar Augustus is the ruler, the emperor, and in, in, in those days he puts out a decree about the census, right, in chapter 2. So everybody's got to come back toward, uh, toward Jerusalem and be counted. They've got to go back and be counted. Um, and so that, it's, in that, 
it's in that context that the birth of Jesus occurs. And I won't get in too much to the details here because uh, we, we know that part of the story. But why is it significant? It's significant because the timing that, that took place. It's also significant because some of these things we're reading about the census decree, what we'll later see about, um, about uh, Herod uh, ordering the murder of children under a certain age because he thought there was a usurper uh, among them and he wanted to preserve his power. Uh, that also, we have evidence of that outside of Scripture. We, we have evidence of those ordinances declared uh, that corroborate that this occurred. And so we see the angel appearing to others to, to begin telling the news that something important is happening. Something significant is happening. And they travel to witness it, to see him, to see the Messiah, the one prophesied. Now we'll skip down a little more to verse 41 of chapter 2, and we'll close with this account. Because we don't have a lot about Jesus as a young boy there's a lot of speculation. There's other accounts that we don't quite know the accuracy of. I know there were other writings that were considered to be accurate by early Christians that they read. But we don't focus a lot on Jesus as a child because we focus on the ministry and the miracles and the parables and the, and the crucifixion, and rightly so. But it is important to understand because Jesus was born just like we all have been, Grew up just like we all have had to, and some of us are still working on, and lived as a human being. And I'm all for glorifying the divinity of Jesus Christ, but to do so at the expense of understanding his humanity is, is also a mistake because those two things are critically important that they exist together. And it wasn't as if Jesus just sort of was born and then floated above everybody as this holy little baby. Um, no, no. He, he, was, he was like you and I in that regard. In fact, Luke himself uh, says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He, he grew up and he, and he had to prove himself and he was bound by the customs of the time and the responsibilities of the age. He was real. He was real. Not much is written about the time, but we do have this account. Verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. By the way, Passover, we know Passover, right? That's, when, uh, that's the, the final plague that uh, helped to free Israel from Egypt. And uh, we have this meal that they established then and the sacrifice of a lamb and the blood on the doorpost. The whole concept of sacrifice for the sake of liberation and freedom is established in the Passover. The whole concept of blood standing guard against death over God's people is established in the Passover. And from that point on, the, Israel, the, Jeru the Jews and the Israelites, they celebrated that moment to commemorate it. And as they were doing it, they were celebrating their history and they were celebrating God. But what they didn't know that God was preparing them in that moment and through that celebration to be conditioned to understand the concept of sacrifice for freedom and rescuing and blood standing guard over their life. Because when Jesus came into the world, he became that lamb 
we see at the end of his life the Passover. We see the Last Supper. We see the celebration and commemoration of those very concepts as Christ is prepared to go to the cross. And at the beginning of his life, and truly the beginning of his ministry, the first time we really see an acknowledgement that he is something different, it's occurring when? During the Passover. The message to the people, though they may not have understood it, is very clear. This is the culmination of the Passover story. So he went up from there according to custom of the feast, and as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it but supposed him to be on the caravan and went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. I often, I wish there was more here. I really wonder what the conversation is like. Can you imagine misplacing the son of God? That would be terrifying. I've lost a kid in Walmart before and thought I was going to get arrested. I just, you know, a day away and they can't find him. When they did not find him, verse 45, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And after three days, they found him. So now they're four days. They haven't seen their kid. And he's kind of important. They finally find him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. The shame and embarrassment, I mean. And uh, parents, we understand, uh, I think. We've had kids that... You know, run off and, and might go pester a grown-up somewhere and we weren't paying attention and we all apologize and we're so embarrassed. Or you ever had a kid say something inappropriate uh, in, a, in, a, in a public setting, you know, and it embarrasses you or they tell, you know, private details that they've picked up. Children can sometimes embarrass us. Um, this is a violation of so much religious and social custom. It's for him to be there. And to be in the midst of these teachers, standing with them almost as equals, but they're in their midst asking questions and answering questions. All who heard him were amazed. And I just imagine Mary coming in there. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Blushing, apologizing. But there he is, and they're astonished by him. They were amazed. Uh, in verse 47, it says his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? You know better. What were you thinking? Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. It's amazing that some of the words are a little different, but this sounds just like a parent today. We've been looking everywhere for you. Um, Thomas uh, here recently he had uh, his phone quit working. Battery burned up on it or something. and So he didn't have a phone for a few days. And he was at school and they had wrestling practice after school. And... I normally know where he's at and when he's ready because of that phone. And I did not, so I just went down there. And he decided he would just walk over to, to the square because Nikki was down there at work. And so I suddenly have no idea where my son is or how to get in touch with him. I figured he probably went down there and we, we, we caught up to each other. But I said, next time you can't get in touch, just stay where you are because I'm coming. You know, I was frustrated as a, as, a, as, a, as a parent. He did the right thing. He knew where he was going. But parents do that. You know, why would you do that? Don't you know we've been looking everywhere? We were scared to death. And he said to them, this is amazing from a 12-year-old. Why is it that you were looking for me? 
Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? It's astonishing. It really is. We often wonder what Jesus knew and when he knew it. When did he know he was the son of God? Um, probably not right away. Uh, I, I don't think that would have... No one wants a four-year-old that knows he's God, okay? So it must have been a little later. But he knows something. And he shows a propensity early on to be where God's action is. And the temple was, in fact, the literal dwelling place of God. And he's there with those who understand God as well as anybody of that day is supposed to because they know the word. And he's asking them questions and he's giving them answers. And this is, by the way, a very typical rhetorical exercise that people who come out of a Greek culture, and by this time um, Judaism has a lot of Greek elements to it, of how they converse and how they discuss and how they reason. It's a back and forth. And a 12-year-old is standing amongst the learned men holding his own. Even Mary and even Joseph were thinking in worldly terms. But Jesus is already thinking more broadly. He already has a wisdom beyond his, his parents. And that would only increase, according to verse 52, there at the end of this chapter, in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. Why does all of this matter? Well, it matters because it's probably the most overlooked part of Jesus' life and ministry that we read in Scripture. We, you know, the birth, we talk about that, and especially this time of year, we talk about it a lot. But we don't talk about Mary. We don't talk about how society treated them. We don't talk about Jesus' upbringing very much because what matters is the ministry and the, and the crucifixion and, all, and the resurrection, right? But here's the thing. If not for the birth, there is no death. If not for the upbringing in the childhood, there is no parables. There is no miracle. There are no healings. There are no teachings. The very thing that made Jesus Jesus is that he lived a life like many of us live. Growing and learning and developing and coming into our own. Yes, he had a divine purpose. Yes, he was the son of God. And in that way, he is very different from any of us. But it's the ways in which he's similar to us that are important and worth talking about. Because if it wasn't for his birth, there would have been no death. And everything that happened along the way was a part of the plan. This was not an accident. God didn't just say, this is plan B. Oh, that old law didn't work out. And Jesus wasn't sitting behind the glass and you you know, to break in case of emergency. From the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, from the creation of all things... Jesus was there being prepared for this purpose. And his entrance into this world marked not only the beginning of executing that plan, but it also represented a key development in who Jesus was because he took on humanity. And his taking on humanity is what made him the perfect sacrifice. It's what made him able to die for our sins, and it's what makes him able to hear and, get, and, 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 and carry our prayers to God. He lays our thoughts, our needs, our hurts, and our wants at the feet of the Lord Almighty. And he can only do that because he was one of us. That's why the birth of Jesus matters so much. It's that one key element that makes the rest of it possible. 
every parable, every miracle, every healing, teaching, interaction that he had all stems from the fact that he was experiencing this world in the same way that we experience this world, yet he was still the Son of God. That should change the way we approach every day of our life. That should. That should cause us to wake up every day thinking differently than we have before we knew that. I hope that these several weeks have been beneficial and helpful in looking at these Jesus stories and maybe understanding something we haven't thought about before or seen before. Maybe it's encouraged you to, to go back and read. A lot of people, as they approach a new year, want to read through the Bible, and I think that's a great exercise. I know people that do it every year, um, and they, they jump around and, and however, whatever order you want to do it in. I think it's a great thing to do. Can I encourage you something, though? Focus on the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Read them all the way through. And then go back and read them again all the way through. And make, I, mean, I'm, I love the rest of the Bible. I would say if you want to read it all, read it all. But maybe if you're going to do a little extra, go to the Gospels. You think you know those stories. There are stories we don't know that we have barely scratched the surface of. Getting to know Jesus more is always a good thing. I hope maybe this has encouraged you to do that and to look at them a little bit differently and to, uh, to dig deep, to dig deep. If we can be of any assistance to you this morning here in this congregation, if we can pray for you in any way, help you in your journey, um, we would love to do that. But we cannot do anything. Only God can move in your life. Only through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ can that be possible. If we can help get you that direction, that's what we're here to do. If you need to improve your relationship with God or become a Christian and be bound to Jesus and bound to one another through the blood of Christ, we want to help you do that. Tim's going to come up and lead us in song, and if there's anything you need, let us know.